Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Features. I'm Adam Shand. This podcast was originally published as part of New South Wales Police State Crime Command. William Allen Roach disappeared sometime around New Year's Eve 1993. The 25-year-old was last seen in the Armidale area of northern New South Wales. Bill, as he was known, has not contacted family or friends since. Bill could have taken his own life or fallen victim to misadventure and his remains have not been located. Perhaps he decided to leave everything behind for a new life far away. Some even believe that Bill's disappearance was connected to the occult and black magic, that a coven of witches had cursed him. He was freaked out. He, I've never seen anyone as white and pale because he'd been cursed. The death wish was on him. However, police have not ruled out that Bill Roach met with foul play. And even if he wandered off and, and had an accident or suffered a medical episode, most likely his remains would have been found by now, I, I believe. And I think this gives weight to the fact that it was foul play. This is a case that's testing the limits of memory and loyalty. The reward for information leading to an arrest in this case has been increased from $100,000 to $1 million. Someone has held onto a secret for nearly 30 years. If ever there was a moment to speak, it's now. In 1993, Bill was living with friends on a ramshackle farm near Armadale. One of the big attractions of Springvale Farm was a waterhole fed by a perpetual spring. It's one of the most intriguing sites in this case for investigators. The best way is to head across this way until we get to where the ridge goes out and then we okay. follow it down. My name is Mark Simmons. I'm a detective senior constable based at Armadale Police Station and have been here for or been in the New South Wales Police for around 18 years. Mark Simmons knows this area well. Located in thick bushland in a steep, rocky gorge, it's a deep body of water, about 30 metres across, fringed by cliffs. Bill and his mates believed that it was bottomless, that it led to an underground cave system. There's certainly a mystique here. Indigenous locals say this was a place of ancient rituals where young men had been initiated into manhood for millennia. There's a rock ledge with a strange checkerboard pattern with symbols carved into it. Bill had often come here. He was in his element. He was a risk taker. He was known to leap off a sheer cliff face at the waterhole. But in the summer of 1993, he was in a fragile state. If it was to happen in a, in a spot like this, you would have been found. Some do believe that Bill died here or somewhere nearby through misadventure or foul play, but no trace of him has been found here or in the pine plantations beyond the creek, despite several searches and inquiries with the current landowners. So, yeah, so have you done much walking around these hills? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never it's seen not... anything that looked like a gravesite or anything. Well, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> 
anything left in or near the waterhole would have been swept away long ago. When we get water, it comes from a lot of high areas and it just floods down through there. You're saying it roars? It does. Our water pump, like that's a fair way up, and chained to a tree, it's been under a, yeah, yeah, twice this year. Wow. Police have also been told that Bill died inside the farmhouse at Springvale and his body was concealed temporarily in these murky waters. Then it was moved to another location, a farm called Baguna, 35 kilometres away from Springvale. So now we're at Baguna. How far is this from Armadale? This would be roughly 20 kilometres. In 2016, Simmons followed up information that an associate of Bill's named Martin Rummery, in company with others, had buried his charred remains on this property. The information I got was that somebody had been present when Rummery had moved, uh, along with another male, had moved a drum, which was alleged to contain some burnt remains. They'd uh, moved that out here on the back of a ute uh, and buried the remains in a paddock. And this also had been present at the time, yeah. The search area was large, more than 1,600 hectares. Ground-penetrating radar was used to find anomalies in the earth that might have indicated the charred remains of Bill Roach. On excavating those anomalies, there was nothing further found, um, which we had expected we would find something if Bill was there. There was considerable media uh, attention to that. Uh, and on the back of that, we did receive further information and other avenues of inquiry which we pursued. Uh, but again, unfortunately, none of those came to fruition. Rummery denied any involvement in Bill's murder and has since died. If he did know anything, he took it to the grave, foregoing the reward of $100,000 then on offer. I spoke to a member of Rummery's family for this episode and they provided an alibi for Martin that he was on a family holiday away from Armadale at the time when Bill disappeared. The challenge for police in this case is that there's uncertainty about the date when Bill actually went missing. He was a mercurial character who was apt to wander off. It took some time for people to realise that Bill was even missing, according to longtime friend Tony Grant. It was like Bill charged off into the night and no one's seen him since. People kept telling me that he was just off his chops. And, you know, he charged off into the bush and, you know, well, has he gone to live on a commune, you know, or has he had a blockade somewhere trying to stop bulldozers pushing trees over or something, you know, like maybe he was in a commune or a bloody ashram or something, you know, or, or a mental institution, who knows. Simmons is reviewing the entire case file once again. He's interviewing witnesses, some of whom are speaking for the first time. Some new and significant information has come to light including a possible connection to the drug trade. Uh, that's right. We've managed to locate a couple of Bill's ex-girlfriends and, uh, and the information we've obtained has been quite helpful. Uh, at the moment, it's still an active investigation. We're still looking into a number of, of avenues of inquiry. It, it will always remain open until we find some answers. To understand what might have happened to Bill Roach, it was important for Simmons to understand just who Bill was and what was happening in his life in the summer of 1993. This process would throw up some surprises that opened new lines of inquiry. Well, he was my big brother. He was everything. So he was also my best friend. He was energetic. He was just Bill. It was great. I knew if I was ever in trouble, he would be there. Kim Roach is Bill's younger sister. She was 23 in 1993 when he vanished. Look, he was... Pretty attractive, super cute. When I hit high school, everyone wanted to be my friend just so as they could be his friend. That's how it was. He's 
popular. He's pretty bright, excellent at all sports and just, you know, a really top kid. Lots of potential. He did some modelling and he had everything at his feet, you know. But later in life he um, chose to turn left instead of going straight, so that's life. Bill was a restless spirit. Born in 1968 as Dennis Weeks, he was given up for adoption by his single parent mother. Armadale couple Yvonne and Jeff Roach welcomed him as their first child. It was a surprise. We were told by the welfare that he would be arriving in the May, but in November we were told that he was waiting for us. He was six weeks old and could we come down immediately? <laughs> I was still working and I had nothing prepared. <laughs> yes, borrowed some clothes to pick him up with. <laughs> It was quite exciting. Later, the Roaches adopted a daughter, Kim, and their family was complete. Bill never knew who his birth parents were, but Kim was determined to find hers. Just before my 21st birthday, or just after, the Australian government opened up the um, adoptive triangle, so you could actually go in search and find your adoptive parents and he said don't you ever do it and I said well I want to I need to find my identity so I went ahead and did it and he he and I argued and argued about that because he he would always say no you've been given up for a reason and that reason is they don't want you and I just go no there's more to that there's always more to that so I went ahead and met my mother whereas he didn't Police wanted a familial DNA sample to check if Bill was amongst the unidentified remains on file in New South Wales. When they came to ask me for DNA and I said, well, I can't because I'm not his biological mother. And fortunately, I had the information that welfare had given me, so I was able to give them the date, the time and the hospital that he was born and the name that the hospital had given him. And I think it only took a week with ads in the uh, Telegraph and that for Margaret to uh, end up at the Parramatta Police Station. Uh, he said to me, your name's Margaret Mary Weeks, and I said yes. And he said, you had a son in 1968 and you called him Dennis. I just, I broke down, of course. You know, I started crying. This was how Margaret learnt that her son, that she was forced to give up, was a missing person. It brought back painful memories of loss. Margaret Weeks, Bill's natural mother. Yes, yes, I can talk about it, you know. I I couldn't once, but I can now. I always felt guilty about it, but there was nothing I could do because I wasn't in the position to keep Bill. I lived with my mother, I wasn't married, and I already had a child. I had my eldest son, Mark. The baby stayed in the hospital for six weeks during the adoption process. I wanted to see him and I kept asking and they kept saying no, but finally in the end they let me see him. I did see him before I went home. Very sad, very sad. You know, there's your baby and you've got to leave it. I suppose that's why they don't like you looking at it. It was very upsetting. After giving a DNA sample so a profile could be created, Margaret was introduced to Yvonne and learned all about her son, Bill. There's two families involved 
And the lovely thing about it is that Yvonne and I are very good friends, you know, and I think that's wonderful. They needed my DNA to test the things that they found in the house, but it wasn't very successful, you know. Be nice if this fella would come forward and even anonymous and just tell us where he is so that we can finally put him to rest. Yvonne. When Margaret and I made a promise to each other then that we'd see this through to the end and that we'd remain friends and she said, well, I don't want to interfere in anything but just keep me in the loop. So last year when I was in hospital with liver cancer and that, she came and sat with me all day, a couple of times, twice she came and we sat all day and talked. And I learned a whole lot about her and her circumstances and they were totally different to Kim's birth mother, totally different circumstances and very sad on both occasions. Kim Roach. I have a different parent. So I found that my birth mother was extremely young. She was 16. She was raped and I was the product of that. And that she had married her longtime boyfriend after she gave me up for adoption and she had three children and she had a very happy life and I think that was great. We still communicate occasionally on birthdays and Christmas and Mother's Day, but now she's faced with a big struggle in life with early onset advanced dementia. So that's just for me and for my children, good to know. In family photos, Bill looks relaxed and content. He's tall and handsome with olive skin, wavy dark hair and a generous smile. Bill told friends he believed he had European or Indigenous roots. He grew up secure in his family's love. He made friends easily. Yvonne Roach. Well, he was one of these lovable boys that everyone liked. He seemed to be a friend to everyone, never harmed anyone intentionally and um, was easily led. He was very good at athletics and sport and... Mediocre at academics, and um, he had a good career going for athletics at one stage. Went to New Zealand for the 1500s for little athletics. Bill grew up in the Armidale area, but in his early 20s, he headed for Sydney. Kim Roach. The best thing he did was move to Sydney, got a great job, great girlfriend. That would have been about three years and then all of a sudden he's just said, nah, he's split up with her and then he's just gone backpacking overseas and he's come back and it was an abrupt return as well. He wasn't planning to come back so early, so whether something had happened over there, I'm not sure, but when he did return, he came home for my 21st, so I'm a Christmas baby, and then that following year he went on to university and that's when it all really, and that's when he changed. Yvonne. When he came back, he decided he'd go alternate and then ended up very feral. <laughs> Once upon a time he had to have the best of clothing, the best of suits, no colds or Woolworths and you know, it had to be the really top suits and leather coats and and then all of a sudden he's got the bottom out of his shorts and dreadlocks and Yeah, he was certainly in search of something, a looking for a belonging, whether it was going to be just a, a short phase or a long phase, we will never know now. By 1993, Bill was living on the dole at Springvale Farm with his best mate, Simon Campbell Hardwick, and two others. 
It's likely that his housemates were among the last to see Bill before he vanished. Bill's mate Simon and another housemate had reported him missing on January 5, but there was a constant stream of people coming and going from the farm. Bill's sister Kim had her suspicions about what was going on out at Springvale. Definitely a mixture. He got involved with some even shadier characters. Uh, It was experimental phase, whether you're into the witches or into just being a full-on feral or a hippie or whatever. So, And then the drugs. The drugs were coming in thick and fast. Whether they'd already been there, I have no idea. But um, at that time, yeah, there was lots of different drugs, acid, magic mushrooms, cannabis. And two, I think it wasn't bush cannabis. Your cannabis was being spiked with the heavy stuff as well. Tony Grant was part of Bill's circle at that time. I wouldn't say this is what kept people together, but this is one thing that was common to everybody. Everybody smoked a bit of hooch, some more than others. But I wouldn't say it was a drug culture. You know, like the main drug we took was caffeine. (laughs) Graham Hunter was an occasional visitor to Springvale Farm. I've changed his name for legal reasons. It was just a lovely bunch of hippies, really. Okay, watch out for your eyes. There'll be flashes. Graham Hunter is an inventor and tinkers with agricultural ideas in his cluttered workshop a few kilometres out of Armadale. He's in his early 50s, as Bill would be now. See, Bill, he lived out of town and he used to come and camp with me. See, like I had a just a little tiny flat, I had a pool table, I was two blocks from town, so I was near the pub. So, yeah, he'd come and he'd just stay. It was sort of like a bit of an open house to him. You wouldn't lock the place up? He had a key. They gave him a key so he'd come and go as he pleased. He was a trusted mate. Yeah, what sort of bloke was he? Very friendly, happy bloke. Charming fellow. He was a lot of fun to be around. He was um, popular with girls. Would he compete with you? Oh, crikey. He used to throw girls my way. (laughs) It was kind of funny. Um, Yeah. And how'd you meet him? Just general social circles, I think. Um, He liked to play pool, I think. Yeah, and I had a pool table in my lounge room. And you played pool with Bill, were you in there? Constantly. Um, he taught me to play pool. Right, yeah, then we'd go down me. to the pubs and do the pool comps and do all that sort of stuff. And, and he'd win? Yeah, of course, yeah. Right? He'd play with him until he won, yeah. yeah. He'd make out he wasn't doing so good, then he'd win. So you just hustle Yeah, I wouldn't say hustle, I'd just say only put effort in at the end of the game. I see. <laughs> Bill had been studying for a Bachelor of Economics at the University of New England, but had dropped out in mid-1993 and was now living unemployed at Springvale Farm. That year, Bill began a relationship with a young woman named who told Bill she was a witch. Bill had been into the fantasy game Dungeons and Dragons since his teens and was fascinated by alternative religions and spirituality, which shared. Tony Grant. Bill's relationships tended to come and go. A bit, but he he was with for quite a while, and it seemed to me to be a fairly serious sort of a thing. Graham Hunter has a slightly different take. Yeah, but that was one of his girlfriends. <sighs> the last girl he was with was a very nice girl. When I left, he'd been seeing a girl called very pretty girl, and I think she liked Bill, but she also liked Bill because it bugged her family. This woman, whom I'll call Janet for legal reasons, was a new name for this investigation. Janet would come up again later in this story as Simmons delved into Bill's last known movements. 
It would take a month before Simmons knew her identity and her whereabouts. She would take the case in a whole new direction. In episode two, we'll explore the night that Bill's life took a dark turn into the occult. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.